That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with Sup China. Sup China is the best way to keep on top of all the latest news from China through our daily email newsletter, our website, our app, and our growing range of videos and podcasts. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Joining me from storied Goldcorn Holler is a man best known for his starring role as Kobus in the Academy Award-winning short film Tube Girl, Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn. <laughs> Jeremy, it's been a while since we've uh, seen you on the big screen. Are you are you really just picky about projects? Are you turning them? Well, I, I, I'm pretty picky, but um, the agents haven't been calling recently. I think it must be COVID-19. That's what I'm blaming everything on. Yes, yeah. everything. <laughs> everything. My whole career is on it. Yeah, that's a good, good way. Anyway, the U.S.-China trade war is something I've been blaming everything else on. Uh, it's been one of the defining struggles of the Trump presidency. Uh, whether you see it as cause or effect, it's been one of the most conspicuous features of a rapidly deteriorating relationship between these two countries. Uh, how the war came about, uh, the casus belli, the personalities involved, uh, the actual course of the trade war itself are all vital to understanding where we are today and where we're likely to go from here and what can still be done, if anything. And fortunately, there is now a book that offers all of that, the, the relevant context, the blow-by-blow blow of the trade war itself, and much more, all with in-depth reporting, with behind-the-scenes detail that we've never heard before. The book, which I have to say is one of the most fun books, despite the kind of, in some ways, very gloomy topic, a really fun book to read. The book is called Superpower Showdown, how the battle between Trump and Xi threatens a new Cold War. And our guests today are its co-authors, the Wall Street Journal reporters Bob Davis and Ling Ling Wei. Bob and Ling Ling, welcome to Seneca. Thank you. Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. Uh, in most of the interviews Bob and Ling Ling have done, they have told their own personal backstories, which are relevant to uh, the book and are also very fascinating. We will put in some links with the podcast to interviews where they both discuss their family backgrounds uh, at some length. But we will save our limited time on this podcast for other subjects. Let me just note that Bob's dad owned a successful luggage factory that eventually was driven out of business by cheap imports from China and other Asian countries, while Ling Ling is the granddaughter of a PLA veteran who joined the Red Army at a very young age, I think he was 16 or something, and took 13, part in the... Yeah. 13, oh my God, even younger. <laughs> yeah, the little, literally a kid. Yeah. Oh my God. Shao Hao Shao, I remember this cartoon. Yeah, exactly. Anyway... He took part in the Long March, which is just amazing. Anyway, needless to say, these two are, are the ideal narrators for our story today, in which we aim to distill just a fraction of the great stuff that they tell in their excellent book. So, Jeremy, why don't you kick us off? Yeah. So, the title of the book is Superpower Showdown, How the Battle Between Trump and Xi Threatens a New Cold War. 
I think everybody listening to the show can agree that we are already in a showdown. But Bob and Ling Ling, has the threat of a new Cold War already become a reality since you published the book? We're getting close. We're getting close. I mean, it, it's hard to date a Cold War. I mean, the original Cold War pretty much dates to Winston Churchill's, you know, speech about an Iron Curtain. Um, there is no one with the moral th- authority or political standing, global political standing of a Winston Churchill. So, you know, we're either close to it, uh, right in it or, or, or right up, uh, right up against it. Certainly has gotten closer since we uh, handed in the book manuscript, that's for sure. Ling Ling, what would you say to that? Um, I probably a little bit, even a little bit more pessimistic than Paul. I felt <laughs> like we are already five inches in. Uh, you know, the, uh, in January, when both Bob and I in Washington covered um, the signing of phase one, right? Everybody thought at least... Uh, both sides were putting a floor under this relationship. And then right. coronavirus uh, happened. It just, you know, threw everything off balance again. And now without, you know, one day going by, uh, we not seeing any, you know, news or new sanctions from either side or retaliations. So it, it's just, you know, I, I feel like we're already in. God, that's depressing. Yes. Anyway, uh, I, I think any reader of your book would be really impressed with the kind of access that you both got. Um, journalists have this word, TikTok, not related to the uh, the video app, which is the latest casualty of, of the, the Cold War. Um, anyway, uh, the journalists have this word called TikTok to, to describe the a behind-the-scenes insider account of, of how you know, a political or other news event transpired, you know, usually it's derogatory. It's, it's sort of, it's something that you're spun with, you know, somebody gives you their version of the account. But anyway, yours, you could say it's, it's a fantastically detailed TikTok of the entire negotiation process and all that detail, the infighting on the American side was just fantastic. Anyway, more interesting to me, at least, was how you guys sourced some of the uh, internal Chinese perspectives. And Ling Ling, I, I suppose you could talk about that. Uh, is, isn't it the case that it's become a lot more difficult just in the last few years for journalists to get access to senior officials and, and that many sources have just clammed up and aren't willing to talk at all? Uh, absolutely, that has been the case for all foreign correspondents in China. Uh, my colleagues and I, you know, oftentimes in the past, we, you know, at least, um, I remember uh, when I first came back, uh, went back to China, that was uh, early 2011, we were able to really get uh, interviews with, uh, for example, finance minister or some deputy governor in the PBOC without really too much trouble. Um, but, you know, before you know, I left China most recently, we were even um, having a harder time to get uh, government researchers to talk to us. So wow. you can see the, I mean, basically under Xi Jinping, everything is a state secret now. The bar for secrecy has got much lower. Um, so, um, you know, people are just scared to talk, scared to be seen as Wang Yi Zhongyang, right? Right, right. You know, criticizing or not in line with the party line. So, um, but, well, 
so what really helped me uh, was um, obviously by the time I started to work on this book with Bob, uh, I already uh, reporting China for nine years, almost nine years. So thankfully, uh, gathered a number of sources who really are you know still talking to me. And um, you know another thing is that um, this is really what both Bob and I are very proud of is. Um, as you mentioned, we kind of really try to offer perspectives from both countries. Um, that's something I, I think really makes us stand out. So, you know, what really helped me is, you know, Bob uh, reporting out of Washington, you know, when he heard something, you know, give me basically good fodder uh, to use to check with my sources in Beijing and vice versa. So once they know that you actually have something, um, the people usually are a little bit more willing to talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Priming the pump, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, I'm curious, you know, what were some of the really juicy tidbits that you guys got uh, that you hadn't seen reported elsewhere? Um, um, Bob, you, you had you know tons of stuff on just the internal strife within the, the team itself, but what were some of the, the best little bits you got? Well, I mean, one of the things I was actually really proud of was figuring out the original uh, call that Trump made or accepted uh, from uh, the new uh, Taiwanese president. Oh, so wow. So yeah. remember, remember how that happened, right? I mean, he's not even in office yet. He takes a call from uh, the newly elected uh, Taiwanese president and for the first time, gosh, maybe for the first time since, uh, you know, since the Shanghai communique, and um, and it looked like he was, you know, setting a new policy, a really tough on China policy, backing Taiwan kind of policy. And, um, you know, it took really a long time to figure out what happened. And it was in some ways it was more frightening uh, than, you know, than a, so launching a new policy to start with. It was some lower. I mean, I know the person uh, who acknowledged it, but uh, under my agreement, um, I wasn't going to use his name, but uh, it was a low-level person who worked on the uh, campaign, who was a fan of the Taiwanese. He put the call on a Excel sheet, figuring somebody more senior would knock it off. Uh, Bannon, Steve Bannon, the, um, uh, the president's at that time uh, chief advisor, uh, saw it, uh, was happy about it because he was willing to go to war you know, on Taiwan and a million other things. And uh, it got past Jared Kushner and Kushner asked him about it. He didn't really explain to him the significance. And so the call went through, um, you know, un 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 unimpeded. Trump eventually said, well, I don't want, you know, China to tell me who I can talk to. But it was an example of how unprepared that uh, group was to um, take on China, even though it had been one of uh, Trump's go-to themes during the campaign. So it was a flunky's chutzpah, Bannon's belligerence, and Kushner's abject ignorance. Yes, combo. <laughs> well, I think we'll, we'll probably get more into that in a little bit, but uh, to go back a step to sort of the reporting on this and, and your own personal roles, Lingling, can I ask you, would you be willing to talk a little bit about attitudes from your friends in China or from officials or family even, uh, or sources that perhaps in the last couple of years now feel that you work for some kind of, you know, go away, de you know, hostile foreign forces. You're working for the Wall Street Journal. 
Is your own family, uh, your friends, your sources, are they comfortable with what they do? Or do you have a lot of, is this a difficult issue for you? Uh, right, that's a great question. Um, also, um, a really, it's very personal question too. Because, I, I'm sorry, I know it's no, personal. No, 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 actually. You have to understand, you know, Jeremy actually walks around with a t-shirt that says, Guo Wai Di Dui Shi Li. So the Wall Street Journal is no longer Jingwai Youhao Meiti. It's never Jingwai Youhao Meiti, the friendly overseas media outlet, never. Um, so, um, you know, um, uh, basically, you know, first of all, in terms of my family, um, I couldn't have done any of the stuff I have done without the support from my parents and my husband and my six-year-old son. Um, so they just like, they're my rock, um, you know, to this day. My, yes, um, oftentimes I, you know, I love talk to my dad, especially about Chinese politics and stuff. I actually learned a lot from him because, you know, he's been a party member all his life and worked in the government for many, many years in the army, you know, civilian government. He knew the system inside out. I felt like I benefited a lot from just talking to my dad. Now, obviously, he wouldn't, he also never shy from criticizing, being critical of my reporting. But I've never, yeah, but he never Typical really dad, tried to, yeah. yeah, exactly. But he really, I, I can see he, he sometimes, he's just really, uh, try really withhold himself from, from really like, no, you can do this. But I think he really means well. He, he really wanted to give me a different perspective thinks through things. So it really been helping a lot. So my family, no question, and my mom's the reason that I actually didn't quit in March when the government issued expulsion orders. Um, so no question, support from them all along. In terms of sources, um, I have to say, like even to this day, uh, senior leadership reads the Wall Street Journal. Liu He's office, basically, he reads two newspapers every day. One is the Wall Street Journal. The other is Financial Times. So a lot of those high-level officials, especially in the economic or financial arena, uh, they do understand the importance of the Wall Street Journal. You know, forget about what the foreign ministry has been saying, but, but they do realize that. So it... You know, in some ways, it did help, like, still help open some doors. But of course, the, the, you know, the window of opportunity and the access is getting narrower and narrower. But increasingly, in terms of general Chinese public, I think it's very, the very worrying trend right now is, you know, because of the almost, uh, you know, this kind of escalation of tensions almost on a daily basis and and the great firewall right that you know limited the the views the 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 coverage the chinese public can really see this this anti and the coronavirus um the, so that all those factors just really caused the anti-american sentiment you know Surge, I, I think, um, in, in China, uh, in, in just the past few months. So, uh, when we were reporting on the trade war, you know, when it first started, Trump had a lot of triumphant in China, as you both know. Oh, right? yeah. those, those Chinese call themselves fans. My neighbor is the one. My mom was even one because uh. they felt like he's so, 
you know, not no nonsense, not you know, just just so decisive. Like look at least, and 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 you know, they they're just so different from the traditional Chinese politicians. So you know, such blank figures they they're so used to. So they had a lot of fans, and in the elite. Uh, more elite circles, like the intellectuals, the market-oriented people, they also were kind of counting on Trump to to force China to change, right? They talked about two old men to help China change. One was Deng Xiaoping, right? The other was Trump. You know, two old men, right? So, uh, so at the back then, there was the expectations were really high, but but then you know. Ever since the um, at the, the at the trade war, uh, you know, went on and the collapse of the talks last uh, last May and the, the in, uh, intensified battle against Huawei and all that, it just made you know and the stepped up propaganda, you know, against the Americans. Just all those uh, under all those uh, all those factors combined, just you know, fostered increasingly like anti-American sentiment in the public. Mm-hmm. So to to go back to sort of the other side of the Pacific, um, uh, when you all reported about six months ago or so that the tariffs had been slashed by half on the day of the announcement of the phase one deal, you got uh, attacked by Lighthizer. Uh, what Both happened? of you, yeah. Both of you. What happened there? Yeah, that was something. Um <laughs> You know, I mean, even for this administration, I mean, it's not unusual for the president to tweet at somebody and call him a loser or whatever. But but Lighthizer really isn't like that usually. Um, I think what happened was that uh, our reporting came out on the day when they were announcing a deal. They were, you know, um, taking credit for this huge accomplishment. And our reporting kind of took the air out of that a bit. Um, although, I mean, in the end, I mean, it was clear, you know, what they settled for and what they didn't. They didn't, the U.S. Uh, didn't uh, actually have to uh, go with um, reducing tariffs by 50%. But in any event, I mean, he just was totally pissed off. And I think also, I don't know this for sure, but uh, but it just seems logical that he heard from Trump. And so, you know, he took it out personally on myself and on Ling Ling you know, my, uh, both of us, when I, when we were there, we got a, uh, denunciation from the PBOC for some story that we did. And, uh, I'm sure Ling Ling collected, uh, others, you know, after I left. But, uh, my son said, uh, you should, uh, print them both out and frame them next to each other. So, I mean, it is what it is. Let's, let's get into some of the, the context, which I think you guys just did a fa- fabulous job on. Um, sort of the run up. There's a ton to say about everything that led up to the trade war. Uh, but one thing I want to focus on is a study that was published in, I think, 2013 uh, called The China Syndrome, Local Labor Market Effects of Import Competition in the United States uh, by David Autor, David Dorn, and Gordon Hansen. And, you know, Bob, I know you've done some fantastic reporting, some of which made its way into your book from the state I live in, North Carolina, among other states, um, about, you know, the impact of this. Uh, you, you did your own sort of first-person reporting of, of the China syndrome in action. A lot of people just, you know, by shorthand, they call it the ADH study. Um, talk about that study, Bob, how how it explains a lot of the, the surge of populism that led ultimately to Trump's, Trump's election and, and thus to the trade war. Sure. I mean, it's an enormously influential study. So let me back up a little more. Let me go a little further back into time. So, I mean, the, the question of the impact of 
low uh, of um, import competition from low wage countries has been around, gosh, since at least the early '90s, since the '80s, and there was this endless, you know, back and forth among economists: was it trade? Was it technology? Um, back and forth, back and forth, and most of them, you know, thought that for the most part it's technology. Um, you know, as if that settled anything. And then the other part of that issue was, okay, there are plenty of job, there are plenty of reports out there that uh, increased trade with China would cost a million jobs or thereabouts over a decade. And then you think to yourself, well, first of all, you hear these you hear these uh, studies all the time. Unemployment was low. Um, we're talking about the late '90s, where um, uh, one of the boom times in the American economy, and also a million jobs over ten years. So that's a hundred thousand jobs a year, and in an economy that produces 150 million jobs and where a couple of million people change jobs every year. So you think, yeah, of course, that's a downside, obviously, for a person who loses his job. But then there's all the many, many benefits of um, increased uh, you know, trade with low-wage countries. What Outer, uh, Dorn, and Hansen looked at was that their overall number really wasn't all that different. But what their, their, their insight was that it's not distributed evenly around the country. It's not 160, 150 million jobs subtract a million. It is highly concentrated in areas uh, of the country, particularly in the southeast, because that's where a lot of manufacturing has moved, and also in the upper Midwest. And in those areas, that competition just decimated, you know, town after town. And so their assessment by looking at it labor market by labor market and showing enormous impacts in local labor markets, even if the national labor market was, you know, largely unaffected or wasn't affected all that much, made just an enormous difference. And then you see the um, the practical effect of all that was in the 2016 election, uh, where, yeah, I mean, I did a lot of reporting on the Trump phenomenon and to some degree the Bernie Sanders phenomenon. It was the same. In areas that were widely impacted by Chinese competition, Trump did amazingly well, and so did Sanders on the Democratic primary. And then they did a follow-up study that said that, uh, you know, did a what-if. So the what-if was if Chinese import competition had grown you know, 25% more rapidly or 50% more rapidly still would have been one of the biggest import surges in, in American history, probably the biggest import surge. Um, uh, and looking at those uh, areas, those those uh, battleground states, their conclusion was that Trump would have uh, lost the election uh, because the impact would have been somewhat more um, tolerable to those communities. Leiling, uh, do, you, do you think there was any awareness of this dynamic in China, either uh, in the government or in the private sector? Um, well, now, for sure, <laughs> there is uh, the, the, the awareness now. Um, so, um, you know, the, um, for, for, the, for the Chinese leadership, um, I, I think there really has been a lot of hubris uh, in China, um, ever since the um, financial crisis uh, in 2008, 2009. Um, you know, obviously China um, did a big stimulus and that helped shield not only um, the Chinese comp- uh, economy uh, from uh, the, the, the financial crisis, but also helped pull the whole world economy out of recession. And that really, that was really, um, you know, to me, it's a 
one of the biggest turning point in the U.S.-China relationship. It 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 basically uh, helped uh, you know make uh, the uh, Chinese leaders more assured of its uh, development model. And um, you know, also provided opportunity for uh, China to start really promote promote uh, its model, governance model on the on the world stage. Um, you know, but you know, at the same time, really, uh, if you you know look at the even the economy at that time, China was already suffering from oversupply of. You know, industrial products like um, steel, um, aluminum, and, and all that stuff. But but what they did, um, they, they sort of like looked the other way. They looked at only only at the success part of of the strategy. And uh, so you know, over time, um, you know, obviously the huge overhand, the debt overhand, the overcapacity overhand from the sti- stimulus still to this day is haunting the leadership. You know, Liu He to this day is still struggling to figure out how to, you know, prevent uh, a financial crisis in China. Um, you know, small, almost on a weekly basis now, right? We're seeing some sort of bank run. You know, small banks granted in China. Um, so um, they're definitely, um, you know, seeing, uh, you know, seeing the consequences now, and you know, have to figure out uh, how to. Uh, deal with its economic problems. So, so back to you, Bob. Another big factor which you address really, really well is the defection of U.S. business, which Beijing had always seen as kind of a reliable ballast, if not indeed a, a full-blown ally. I think a lot of people, uh, not just in Beijing, saw this as a pretty sudden shift. Uh, was it? And if so, was there like a straw that broke the proverbial camel's back? Or was this just the slow accretion of indignations and, and, and mistreatment? Um, I would say largely an accretion, but, you know, it is uh, kind of like a stream that all of a sudden turns into a river at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the high point, looking back, the high point of the relationship, I think, was 2008 when the two economies uh, worked together to pull the uh, the world out of a recession, which, let's remember, was made in the United States. Um, but it also at that point, China's feeling its oats. Um, U.S. companies are starting or, or more and more beginning to think that they're really never going to get a fair deal in China. Um, the Chinese also from their part of view starting to think they don't really need the Americans as much as they thought they did. Mm. Uh, and so this sort of, that's in the background, the sort of question, you know, did the Chinese uh, government really want Americans to prosper and to make money there? Um, I think uh, it was the head of General Electric, I think, who said, I don't think they want us to make any money. I don't want they want any of us to make any money. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. And so and then there's that. And then the um, uh, sustained criticism of China for pressuring them, for Chinese, for the government, from their people they do business with, pressuring them to turn over technology when they didn't steal technology. So all that is building up, building up, building up. I think... You know, if you want to date it in particular, it's even before Trump. I mean, it was the release of the Maiden China 2025 report in 2015, where China laid out its plans to um, become a world leader in, you know, about in 10 or 12 uh, industries of the future. You know, in some ways, it's like 
you know, nor, you know it's just traditional, uh, right. nothing out of the unusual for China. It's the land of five-year reports. Um, some of them work out, some of them don't. But I think what it was, it came after a number of other efforts to, um, you know, to, uh, to boost uh, technological de- development domestically at the expense of uh, foreign companies. There was that, and also that they laid out specific targets that they could only meet, which they didn't actually meet, but that they could only meet by, um, you know, basically shutting off um, uh, foreign competitors. So that rallied a lot of uh, industry. And then the Trump administration came in. And uh, one part in which the uh, U.S. corporate interests did agree with the way uh, Trump took on China was on the Section 301 report about intellectual property theft and and pressure. And that gave companies a way to register their complaints and put into a policy or put into a, a list of grievances, um, you know, what they had been feeling about uh, Beijing uh, for years and years. And so uh, they weren't just the ballast, they were Beijing's best lobbyists. And Beijing didn't have to pay for lobbyists. You had corporate America working for them. And that would, turned out to be no longer the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Bob and Langlin, there is a uh, number of characters in uh, the Dramatis Personae on both sides, all kinds of people that you uh, talk about in your book and, and you describe their actions at various meetings and things. Um, but these people, uh, many of them are ca- real characters and their pred- predilections and personalities had have and uh, continue to have and had a huge impact on how things go. Could you talk about them a little bit? And maybe we could start with the Chinese side. And obviously, we have to start with Liu He. We all know that he is a trusted ally of Xi Jinping and, in fact, was a middle school classmate. Uh, I think you also mentioned in your book that he is an English speaker. He studied at Seton Hall. And he has a master's in public administration from Harvard University. You might think that for C, that might count against him, but he has apparently retained C's trust. Can you talk about him a little bit? Sure. Um, yes, um, all those qualities, um, you know, Western oriented, speaks per- perfect English and, um, you know, kind of market-oriented, um, all those qualities does seem like, you know, uh, raise a question about someone like uh, President Xi Jinping, who's, you know, all about um, uh, consolidation, power, and uh, party control, you know, how would those two get along? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I, I guess for uh, Xi Jinping, I think one thing he values uh, a lot, probably more than anything else, is loyalty. And, you know, as, as we wrote in the book, he and Liu He, like, they're boyhood friends and that's, um, and had shared the same kind of, you know, family stories. Um, both, uh, both dads were, um, communist revolutionaries, um, who, you know, basically, um, suffered, um, dearly from the cruelty of the Cultural Revolution. Liu He's father, you know, even committed suicide um, during the height uh, of those crazy years. So they shared um, a lot in common, grew up in the same neighborhood. Um, 
that really means a lot for Xi Jinping.、Um, and you know, we know that、um, over the past few years, he was、uh, he has been in power. One big thing he did was、uh, installing people he trusts. You know, in all those、uh, important posts, so this really matters to him than、um, anything else. And also for Liu He, he's not really,、um, you know, yes, he's pro market, and he's really,、uh, he also wants to carry out certain changes asked for by the U.S. side. But he really doesn't seek, you know. All, he's a very cautious person as well, and he also doesn't have the really the kind of bureaucratic uh, uh, base or foundation as you know, for example,、uh, you know, Premier Zhu Rongji used to have. You know, Zhu Rongji, after all, ran the whole state council, right? Worked his way up, and for for Liu He, most of, most of his、um, time working in the government, he was a pencil pusher, right? He drafted many of those. For、uh, five-year plans, so he didn't really、um, have that governance pro, uh, uh, experience. So he didn't really have a political base. His biggest strength, and also we, you could argue, also his biggest weakness is his ties to Xi Jinping. So he's very beholden to what she wants, as opposed to what he thinks really should be good for the Chinese economy. That's fascinating. That I mean, there's some division. Then I mean, there's obviously politics everywhere. But even on the Chinese side, there's some. But they pale in comparison to the really stark schism that was, I think, even obvious to people who didn't have the kind of insider access that you guys had.、Uh, there's this globalist camp、uh, on the American side, and, and obviously, sort of the, the primary figure there is Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin.、Uh, can you talk about Mnuchin's role in this process, and then maybe you know contrast him with、uh, some you know. My favorite guy,、uh, Ron Vara. I mean,、um, Peter Navarro, <laughs>、uh, who you know, he's recently. I saw him on Fox News talking about how China was hitting us with this weaponized virus. Good old Peter Navarro.、Um, yeah. So Mnuchin versus Navarro, and then where Lighthizer fits into all of this. So Mnuchin is a guy who was born to privilege.、Um, his father was a famous、uh, Goldman Sachs trader、uh, during the.、Um, The meltdown. What was that? The nineteen ninety seven meltdown.、Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that where the stock market dropped like twenty five percent in in a day, and then wound up bouncing back. The government actually turned to his father、uh, to try to shore up confidence on Wall Street. I mean, he was that well regarded.、Um, you know, Mnuchin's rich. He went to Yale. He was in the、uh, what do they call it? The Bones, that secret society. Skull and Bones. Was, Skull and Bones. Thank you.、Uh, you can see I went to Queens College, not to Yale. Um, uh, and uh, you know, became a partner. What 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 is the secret society at Queens College? <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah, we, we were never recruited to, to Goldman Sachs at Queens College. <laughs> so, but I mean, you know, he made partner by the time he's thirty. You know, he leaves pretty early on. He becomes a successful movie producer and、uh, scoops up some scoops up banks during the financial crisis. Marries a glamorous actress.、Um, you know, so that's who the guy is. And then he, you know, he, he's one of the people who look and and also、uh, some of the question was, well, why would a guy like that sign on with Trump? 
And he was pretty open about it with, uh, you know, with his with his uh, friends on Wall Street, which was he had a cheap option to become Treasury Secretary. There weren't a lot of establishment Republicans <laughs> clamoring to be on the Trump campaign. Um, so it worked out right. for him. And then, you know, he had no, as far as anyone can tell, even his people who are longtime friends of his, he had no real policy interests, particularly. Um, so he, I think what he wound up doing was sort of, you know, representing the Treasury Department. The Treasury Department has its own uh, way of looking at the world, right? I mean, they're, they're, uh, what they try to do is protect the U.S. financial system and look uh, more broadly at the global financial system. And in that, in that uh, lens, I mean, China's clearly a problem, without a doubt. And, and I think there was widespread agreement that uh, China needed to be, you know, dealt with in a more, um, uh, in a stronger fashion than it had been in the past. But there's a lot of problems in the global economy. And uh, so China's one of them. And I think what he tried to do is to sort of constrain uh, Trump, uh, deal with China, certainly deal with China, but not in a way that would wreck markets and uh, set back the U.S. economy. So there you have a guy who, again, yeah, China's an issue, a lot of issues out there. And then you're dealing with Peter Navarro, who is... <laughs> I don't know what to say about the guy. I mean, you know, he, he is someone who, um, was a sort of, sort of, if you know the reference, a sort of Sammy Glick kind of figure, a guy who was on the make, an intellectual on the make. Uh -huh. I mean, he started, um, you know, he was a, he's a Harvard PhD, um, uh, from Pete, from economists that I respect. Uh, they say he did very good work on electricity regulation. That was his expertise, right? And then he wanted to be a politician. So he ran as a Democrat. He lived in uh, San Diego and he ran as a Democrat. Then he ran as a Republican. He ran as an independent. But he started off as an anti-development uh, politician. He didn't want San Diego to turn into Los Angeles. He was an environmentalist at that time also. Um, uh, but also he had uh, one trait that uh, continued his entire career, which was his ability to piss off even his friends. Um, and so even the people who think of, who think highly of him basically say, you know, yeah, he would do this, you know, he would do, you know, he would push an issue and he would, you know, take the kind of positions we liked, but ultimately he was a jerk. And, you know, he would alienate people who, um, you know, who, uh, flocked to him. So, you know, sort of fast forward, he, he catches, he gloms onto China as an issue. He says it's because, you know, he sees the impact of China in his community, um, whatever, however you look at his motivation. He puts out, you know, uh, book after book. I, I look at him as kind of like a pamphleteer. Any sort of bad thing you've ever thought about anything uh, China's doing. And so he put out this book, Death by China, where uh, the video shows a, a, plun uh, a dagger plunging into the heart of America. He gets uh, Trump to endorse it. Um, and again, remember, we're dealing with the Trump campaign where they don't have establishment Republicans, uh, you know, flocking to them and they don't have established uh, academics flocking to them, to say the least. So he for them, he was a real get, you know, a Harvard PhD was the only one that the only one uh, remotely with those sort of credentials. And in the White House, he becomes he is Trump's guy. He would he would do anything for the president. He, you know. Um, uh, he, you know, constantly will talk about, you know, Donald J. Trump. I mean, he's always referring to him publicly as Donald J. Trump. 
Um, right. And, you know, the guy who, uh, you know, can't make a mistake and is, uh, you know, willing to take on China. And he saw Mnuchin as his greatest rival. And it, mm. it was true. After, after Mnuchin Cone tried left, to, right? First yeah, after Cone, Cone left. Yeah. Well, both of them, actually. But Cone got more publicity. I mean, they both of them tried to get Navarro uh, transferred to a basement office in the <laughs> Commerce Department. They blocked him for 50 days yeah, I think isn't that how long isn't that how long Jesus wandered in the desert? I mean, he, they <laughs> they blocked him for fifty days from getting into the White House, um, and he resented it in you know enormously. Um, I mean, excuse the profanity, but he you know he would say things like it's fucking Game of Thrones around here, and he was he was like headed for the red wedding. Um, so uh, so you had him representing. China, whatever China does is bad, and we need to take them on immediately, aggressively, and China will never retaliate against the United States because the United States, you know, is too powerful, um, and Donald Trump is too, you know, ferocious a uh, figure. Then you have uh, Bob Lighthizer, the U.S. trade representative, who um, had made a career of defending um, steel companies from import competition, not only from China, first from Japan, but then from China, and was an avowed protectionist. I mean, he wrote articles uh, defending protectionism. He wrote an article defending Trump in an earlier presidential run uh, when people were accusing him of protectionism. Um, Trump and he didn't know each other, but he was clearly the sort of person that Trump needed, a real expert on trade issues, without right. a doubt, very, very competent guy, um, but also a guy who looked at China as an existential threat and um, uh, knew how to uh, use the levers of government uh, in a way that neither Mnuchin uh, nor Navarro did. And so over time, uh Trump began to rely more and more on Lighthizer. And Lighthizer, uh, in a very interesting way, went from, uh, you know, China as an existential threat to looking for Chinese um, allies, uh, looking for that elusive Chinese reformer who would only understand that what the United States wants is in China's interest. Not very much different than uh, many, many um, U.S. trade representatives and economic officials in previous administrations, mm. and he became pretty close with Lu He. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, to slightly shift tack, Ling Ling, um, how aware do you think the Chinese side were of the uh, individuals involved on the American side? You know, were the Chinese negotiators, were, or even Xi Jinping, were they looking at this cast, this motley crew of characters, Lighthizer, Mnuchin, um, Peter Navarro, were they looking at them and trying to understand what was going on? And did they understand what was going on? To borrow uh, something Premier Li Keqiang said when he was watching the U.S. Uh, presidential election, uh, the campaign back in 2016, uh, we're mar- watching this with amusement. <laughs> so, uh, they, uh, on the Chinese side, you know, um, obviously, as, as Kaiser mentioned earlier, there's definitely a lot of divisions, uh, with, of opinions within, on the Chinese side. But what the Chinese have done better, uh, than the Americans, uh, is that they turn to speak with one voice. Right. So you can you you don't really see the divisions you know just by 
uh, listening to what they say. But um, but in terms of uh, how they reuse their chi uh, American counterparts, okay. Uh, for the, the easiest answer is Navarro because they absolutely hate him. Like, <laughs> that guy is read. I wonder not why. Redeemable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he is not redeemable for, for the Chinese. Uh, Mnuchin. Or me. <laughs> exactly. So from, in terms of Mnuchin, um, you know, he's a guy who basically they feel like can, uh, they can work on. They have worked on. Um, make sure, you know, make him a little bit more sympathetic with the Chinese position because, you know, as Bob pointed out for Munichin, you know, one, um, big thing for him is the markets, right? Markets up and down that, uh, you know, that's what the president has been, uh, really, uh, has cared about. So, um, and in terms of, uh, Lighthizer, especially initially, he was a puzzle for the Chinese side. Mm. They, even felt a little bit intimidated by him. Uh, the reason I was saying this, one of the anecdotes I was really proud of was, uh, you know, Lighthizer's first trip to China, uh, to Beijing, you know, this part of the, he was part of the President uh, Trump's uh, entourage, right? But to the surprise of the Chinese side, um, he became the lead trade person, right? Uh, when the uh, President Trump and his entourage was having meeting, a meeting with President Xi Jinping and his entourage. Because at that point, the Chinese side thought it was Wilbur Ross. But, you know, very against the diplomatic protocol, basically, the, the American side switched gear right in that moment. And Wilbur Ross ended up sitting outside this conference room in the Great Hall of the People to be consulted, right? So, so that point, and, and Lighthizer was very straightforward and very blunt, basically gave a lecture to President Xi Jinping listing the number of things China has done wrong. And that really, you know, got this Chinese side strong. And, and you know, that's why I was, I was saying that um, why they initially felt even a little bit intimidated by, by him. And, and obviously, they felt like he's very hawkish. Not some, not someone they can actually win over. So they spend a lot of time on working on Mnuchin. Not, you know, until the, uh, Argentine summit between Trump and Xi, you know, they felt like, okay, we had to deal with this guy. But, you know, as Bob mentioned, um, as time went by, there was also some of the personal rapport that was developed between uh, Lighthizer and Liu He, because, you know, Liu He was a very, very humble person, friendly, humble, unlike any of the, those, uh, wolf warriors, you know, we're, we're watching on TV on a daily basis. He's someone the Americans felt like, you know, even for someone like Lighthizer, he felt like someone he can talk to and right. talk senses to. So, so that really helped China, you know, she, you know, achieve this trade deal. Um, so that, that's how I would describe all this. So if the Chinese side spoke, you know, generally with one voice, the American side generally didn't. The, then there was Trump himself. And even, you know, as one individual, he didn't speak with one voice. Uh, you guys talk about how there was this sort of Janice faces Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde uh, 
Wall Street Trump on the one hand and blue collar Trump on the other. I'm not always sure how these two Trumps line up with the other two Trumps that I would edit. Like there's transactional Trump who could sometimes be blue collar Trump, right? You know, or agricultural Trump. He could sometimes be, you know, Wall Street Trump, transactional Trump. He just wants to lower trade deficits or whatever. And then there's also America first Trump, you know, who all he wants is to thwart China's rise and he will listen to everything his national security hawks say to him, you know, the pottingers of the world. Uh, help me figure out, I mean, is my confusion just a reflection of a reality? Well, there's a lot of ways to look at the guy, right? I mean, it's, I think why everyone is confused is because he doesn't know his own mind, right? right. I mean, it's not that he came into office with uh, some, you know, uh, you know, specific policy agendas. He's not Bill Clinton, or he's not, you know, Barack Obama. And I'm, I'm not just pointing that way, you know, at Democrats. Um, um, you know, he's not Ronald Reagan either. Right, right. You know, I mean, Ronald Reagan uh, had a, you know, a mission, right? A specific agenda with ideas about how to how to complete them. That's not Donald Trump, right? And, and so he glommed on to uh, trade as an issue early on in, uh, in his career when he was you know, a real estate developer looking to get a bigger reputation um, and uh, to kind of burnish his reputation. I was just a guy who builds buildings and dates models, uh, but someone who is a deeper thinker. So in during the, you know, 80s, the late 80s and early 90s, he gloms on to Japan as an issue. And if you think back then, you know, there were a number of CEOs who uh, took very aggressive positions on foreign trade. Lee Iacocca, um, was probably the most famous, was one of the most famous, sure. Ross Perot, a whole bunch of them. And then they kind of all faded away, um, because, you know, the CEOs became more corporatized and China is a different issue than, than Japan. And then Trump still has this same essential belief about the perfidy of, uh, foreign, uh, countries. He's just, you know, instead of Japan, now it's China. But he's never really thought deeply about how you would deal with you know, these sort of issues. He had a campaign book um, for an earlier campaign, I think it was the 2000 campaign, where his, uh, yeah, it was the 2000 campaign when they were, uh, at that time, they were looking at um, uh, letting China into WTO. There's nothing about that in the book. Um, uh, but there's a lot about uh, his basic uh, policy recommendation at that point is to make himself USTR because he would, he would, uh, you know, get better trade deals. Um, so he comes in, he has this general idea that China's a bad actor. He looks at the world in a, a truly a mercantilist way, exports minus imports. Um, and when he says that uh, Europe is a worse problem than China, he means it. And when he says that Jay Powell, the Fed chairman, is a bigger problem than China, he means that also, because that's the way he sort of looks at things, right? I mean, China had the biggest trade deficit with the U.S. So ipso facto, it's the biggest, it's the biggest problem. Germany is, you know, either number two or number three. And so that's a big problem too. Japan as well. Um, and then, so you have that impulse about, you know, this is bad and we need to fix it somehow and we need to get the trade deficit down. Um, and then you have that. But on the other hand, he's, you know, he's a businessman, right? And he, how does he judge his success? One of the ways he judges his success is how well the markets are doing in the stock market is rising um, and he doesn't want to mess that up. And for the first year or two, his threats don't really uh, affect the market much at all because I don't think 
many in the market took it all that seriously, but at some point it did. And so you you just see the different aides playing to different sides of his of his uh, you know personality and lack of sort of policy groundedness. That's why I talked about blue collar Trump or or Wall Street Trump. Yeah, you could use different uh, you know different metaphor, but but the idea is he genuinely did believe. China's screwing the U.S. workers and he wanted to do something about it. And he genuinely did believe that, you know, the health of the U.S. economy is reflected in the, in the stock market and he didn't want to mess that up. So it was constantly back and forth and the aides played on that enormously. And also, mm. you know, it was very confusing for them too. It was confusing for the Chinese. It's confusing for everybody. <laughs> uh, does, does he really believe that uh, the Chinese are paying the tariffs, do you think? I think he genuinely believes that. I think my impression from reporting on him is what you see is what you get, you know, and and the way um, his advisors would translate things, they would, his advisors understood all this, of course, right? I mean, this is not high-level economics here, but so with the trade deficit, how are you going to get the trade deficit down? That was one of his, that was his main goal. So they translated that into China buying more stuff. Right. That doesn't necessarily mean the trade deficit is going to come down, but that was at least some way of putting that into, you know, into action. Christ. <laughs> <coughs> we're all, we're, 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 we are truly fucked, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ling Ling, do you think that there were points where we got really close? That is, where not just one side believed that it had gotten close, like, in April or of 2019, uh, but both sides actually feeling they had gotten close. And then what ended up scuttling it at that point? Well, uh, back in the April 19, um, uh, 2019, uh, the, the American side for sure had that feeling. Yeah. Generally, think that, you know, in the nice evening of a baseball game, right? Uh, I, yeah. I so not um, don't understand baseball. So I'm just, <laughs> <Don't worry. laughs> just uh, reciting what I heard in terms of describing. I, I feel you, Ling Ling, as a as a fellow immigrant. <laughs> I do not know what yeah. they're talking about. I was told I was told I would never be American without understanding baseball and appreciating baseball. So <laughs> and football. Uh, so I'm oh, trying. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I know. We have a lot to talk in common. I, you know, I love. Uh, after this, yeah, we'll have other. a private chat about yeah, this. Exactly. <laughs> and Bob right. and I can talk about, about football. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so, so, sorry to waste your time here. But anyway, so, yes, there's definitely a lot of optimism um, in Washington. But in Beijing, um, the mood was quite different. Um, one, you know, little factoid we have in the book is a meeting Hu Chunhua, you know, vice premier who's in charge of foreign trade investment. You know, he, um, was very frank about, you know, uh, the party thinking about a potential deal in a meeting with, uh, Japanese trade delegation. Um, you know, we didn't, we didn't know about that conversation, you know, when we were covering the trade war in real time, but in hindsight, it really was very telling. He said something like, you know, the ball really is in the U.S. court, like they're asking too much. And um, not a, not he's not sure at all whether a deal could materialize anytime soon. So that was really one of the earlier um, 
uh, you know, uh, uh, signs that the Chinese side, you know, wasn't as optimistic as the U.S. side. Um, you know, obviously, and as we detailed in the book, um, you know, what really transpired during that period of time, um, even though Xi Jinping is as powerful as he really is, there are certain protocols he has to go through. Um, you know, the Communist Party, one of the reasons that they have been you know, in power for so long is that they have a well-established system, right? You go through that system even though you're a very powerful leader. So he had this meeting with his other six standing committee colleagues and the support was tepid at most. You know, he ended up being this deciding vote, so different from the WTO uh, era, right? The same thing, Jiang Zemin, uh, before signing the deal with the U.S. side, Jiang Zemin also had a standing committee meeting, and there was only one no, no vote that was Li Peng back then. Huh. But now you, you have like three no votes that's very clear you didn't have the majority. And at the same time, you know, China, uh, Xi at the time felt like time was really on China's side, right? China, one of the most important reasons was uh, Chinese economy was stabilizing while uh, President Trump was yapping about the Fed on a pretty much daily basis, thinking they're not doing enough to support the U.S. economy. So all those reasons combined did, you know, make the Chinese, you know, decide to push back harder. And it's also very um, reflective of what the Chinese are like during any kind of negotiations. Like, just, you know, all purely, I'm sure Kaiser and Jeremy, you lived in China for so many years, you oh, yeah. knew how it was like. At the very last minute, they would say, oh, no, 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 no. They would, like, bargain, do another round of bargaining with you. It's right. never that. The, the contract is already signed, and then as soon as you sign it, you like, oh, but, 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 exactly. but. Right, yeah. Exactly. That's yeah. just the Chinese style. Yeah. They didn't feel like, they really felt genuinely they're not renege, reneging because as they have said, nothing is final until everything is final. You sure to, you know, move with the times. Like the contract is already out of date because we signed it yesterday, right? <laughs> uh, so I think this is a question for both of you. There seems to be a massive disconnect in the understanding of the Trump administration about the actual state of the Chinese economy. Um, much of the kind of rhetoric you see coming out of the administration consists of cherry picking more pessimistic takes and wishful thinking. Uh, conversely, China seems like it's a little better tuned in on pressure points in the American economy, uh, you know, such as uh, the farm economy. But they sure. get the Trump administration itself wrong all, all of the time. Uh, what explains these disconnects? It's like both the Communist Party and the Trump administration have a poorer than statistical average strike rate on their guesses. Well, I'll, ta I'll take the Washington, uh, the Washington angle. I mean, so, I mean, this administration is full of uh, China hawks, uh, full of people who think that uh, China is the biggest threat to the United States is the rise of fascism. There are genuinely lots of structural problems in the Chinese economy, right? I mean, that economy might, um, you know, um, not implode, but might, uh, because of its debt problems, wind up in a Japan-like 
kind of funk. Uh, and if it does, it would be dev- it would be even more devastating than it is in Japan because it's not a rich country at this point. Only parts of the country are rich. So it's not a fantasy to think that China um, could either implode or slow down in a very substantial way. And um, what they look at is every argument that, you know, that would support that kind of view. Um, and it's there are lots of uh, folks out there that have been predicting that uh, for quite some time. I mean, I wrote an article when I left China in 2014, you know, about those kind of problems, too. Um, my, my view always was uh, somebody's going to get the, to write the China, you know, comes apart kind of story. It wasn't me. It wasn't or the Chinese economy. Uh, comes apart. It wasn't me. It wasn't the guy who came after me or the one who after them. But, you know, at some point they will hit a recession, right? And so they felt that they were at that particular moment and the pressure that they were putting on China was going to tip them into that moment when the economy would stall out. Um, and they looked for confirming evidence, certainly. And what about on the Chinese side? Well, um, on the Chinese side, um, I mean, uh, for, for China, they think their biggest trump card is China's market. Um, so, um, you know, they still believe to this day that, um, multinationals, um, including the U.S. companies can't really afford to lo- lose access to the Chinese market. So, um, they, you know, they have used that. Um, these trump cards throughout the trade war and, you know, still using today, you know, that's the, the biggest leverage Beijing has over Washington. Um, in terms of the read on the American economy, um, I do believe that, um, you know, as Bob mentioned, for the Trump administration, they tend to look for evidence that can support their um, uh, views that China is about to have a really, you know, Chinese economy is about to collapse, you know, one of the details um, we have in the book was this guy, this university, Renmin University professor, Shang Songzuo, right? You know, he gave a very daring speech uh, that went viral, not only in China's social media, but apparently within the Trump administration as well, because he talked about, you know, real numbers showed China's economy actually contracted last year. But in reality, um, but for the Chinese side, when they, when they look at, the, I think the Chinese side turn to, um, you know, basically incorporate more different views about, you know, uh, how the, the U.S. economy, um, is doing from, from both, you know, um, you know, uh, the, the bears and bulls, you know, out there. And I, I know every, like, senior, um, economic agency, high-level economic agency in China, be it PBOC or the finance ministry, um, you know, or uh, Liu He's team in the central economic, uh, central uh, leading group for economic and financial affairs, they all have specific people uh, whose own only task are monitoring what the Fed is doing, what uh, you know the, the the Treasury Department is doing. So they, you know, they. It seems like, at least, um, you know, based on what I know, they try not to look for evidence about, you know, signs of, you know, uh, 
you know, trouble in the U.S. economy. But obviously, they also follow President Trump's tweets, right? If you know, for a while, Trump almost tweeted every so often about the Fed. Uh, hackering the Fed chairman to low, lower rates, and you know, for for the Chinese side, that was a sign that the U.S. economy probably was in a bigger trouble than than the um, uh, than you know w- was led on by by, by statistics. But um, I think for now, um, China also still, you know, China's economy looks like it's the first one to come out of recession right after coronavirus. And um, I think right now their strategy is really buy time, right? Right. As long as you know China's growth continues, you know, however limited that is, China would be in a better position position to negotiate with the U.S. That's that's really their thinking. Um, and 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 right now looks really you know it, on. It, Purely on the basis of the economy, you know, it looks like they're they're um, you know they there's at least reasons for optimism for Beijing for for now. But you know, obviously, the question how long it can keep going. Exactly. I'm wondering how much of a complication you think the introduction of Huawei into this whole thing has been. You know, the uh, putting the placing of, of Huawei on the entity list. Uh, and all the other stuff that, that's, that's happened, including, you know, Moandro's detention, uh, the issues around it, like the, the hostage diplomacy that China's pursued since then, you know, kidnapping of the two Michaels, uh, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. Uh, how much of a complication has Huawei been on the whole process? Well, it depends on which part you're looking at. I mean, yeah. if you're if the lens is the, the trade deal, sure, it was definitely a complicated complication. Yeah, let's we'll stick to the trade deal. So, for the trade deal, it was certainly a complication. Um, but remember again, sort of blue collar Trump versus Wall Street Trump. Right. This is not an issue that Trump was championing. Um, the way it got on the presidential agenda was after uh, the talks broke down in May, as Ling Ling described, and, and Trump is furious about what he viewed as China backing away and reneging. John Bolton gets into the White House and says, you know, we have another pressure point here and, you know, and raises Huawei, which uh, commerce had been working on, and it puts it on the fast track right. um, because he was looking for another way to get back at, uh, get back at China. Um, and so it became for Trump, it became a pressure point, but for, the many people in that White House uh, and administration who look at, again, look at China as, you know, a threat on a par with fascism, uh, this became, you know, a crusade, really. And so for them, the trade deal was an impediment to Huawei. I mean, they wanted uh, the trade deal as an impediment in the sense that you had to cut a deal with with China, what they wanted was um, separation, and uh, you know, and a first uh, a way to demonstrate it uh, was um, by basically strangling Huawei as best they could. <laughs> uh, Leeling, you guys make the case that the Trump administration's willingness to use tariffs is a very powerful weapon, one that will certainly be deployed by uh, the next administration, whether that's another Trump administration or by Biden. Um, that that finally got China to the table. Um, I think a lot of people saw this as proof of this claim you often hear that China that China only responds to strength and, and not to weakness. Uh, 
But now, I mean, just looking at the huge array of sort of tough on China policies that have been rolled out across this really wide spectrum, it seems to me that that we've gone way too far in that direction of, you know, ying and just everything is ying, everything is hard. Uh, maybe it's time to recognize that China, to use another Chinese metaphor, is, you know, like is a shun mao lü, that, you know, I, okay, so I was talking to Anath Krishnan, who you might guys, I might know, he was a correspondent for the Hindu in Beijing. Uh, we were talking about the, the Sino-Indian border dispute, and um, he quoted a, a, a Chinese scholar who had said that China sees the settlement of the border issue as something that would result from overall improved relations. Well, India sees a border settlement as like a precondition to improved relations. I, I immediately went to thinking about the trade war because I was reading your book, uh, that this was maybe apt for China and the U.S. as well. China tends to see concrete settlements or concrete concessions as the outcome of overall improved relations and how often its counterparties, whether it's the U.S. or India, sees it the other way around, sees that concrete agreements have to come before there can be an overall improvement of relations. Um, I mean, I feel like this is a, a key distinction in just the way they conduct diplomacy. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, is Ling Ling, does that sound right to you? Um, I think that's a very sharp observation, and I agree with you. Um, I really don't think the party leadership is chiying bu chiruan. I actually think, as you described, it's more like chiruan bu chiying, because um, for them, the most important thing is, you know, you, you need to give them faith. Yao mian. Right, right. That's not just a part of the Chinese. Um, so, um, and, but, but for, specifically about this trade war and this, uh, deal with the U.S., yes, the tariffs got the Chinese attention. They, they were forced to the negotiation table. <laughs> we also need to look at what really was achieved achieved in the end, right? You had the deal, very unrealistic deal. So far, China's purchases 50% below the rate, right? And the only thing they're buying in bulk is ag. You know, at, they know that is the high, one high profile sector that, that is near and dear to Trump's heart. So it's, it's really, I really do not think this uh, pressure techniques have achieved too much for now. Right. On the other hand, it made the Chinese leadership realize U.S. is no longer a reliable partner. They doubled down on the existing state-led development model, especially you know in areas like tech. Right? We featured this you know, an Ankara project and also this whole choke point initiative. Uh, you know, you ask, you know, any, um, any, uh, people who involved in high tech and research and science area, they would tell you being showered with funds, government funds these days, because, you know, their only task is just figure this out. If we, if we, if the U.S. cut us out, what can we do? So the, it just, I, I really do not, and on the other hand, it also made the Chinese public and a lot of even pro-market liberal thinkers, like people like Lo Jiwei, you know, we always, when we're talking about him, he's one of the reformers and blah, blah, blah. You know, people like him, you know, 
like started to think the U.S. was going too far. It, it really the only I mean the biggest impact on China was it continued to you know basically play uh, into the hands of the hawks. Like, look, this is what the U.S. is doing to us. Right. You know that's it's just. I don't know. I mean, this is really, as Bob mentioned once, you know, it's much easier to identify the problems China has, but much harder to really figure out a solution. If, 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 the, for example, if U.S. companies and the U.S. Um, individuals still want to go to China, do business there or work there or live there, don't you think the government still needs to figure out a way to engage with this country? I mean, yeah. by the people, for the people, of the people, don't you feel like you need to like really listen to your people? I mean, same goes with the, I'm, I'm not like not saying I'm sympathetic with the Chinese position in any way. Not at all. But I'm just trying to think what is really the effective way to deal with increasingly authoritarian leadership who's so savvy in terms of taking advantage of you know, whatever the U.S. is doing and stirring up this kind of nationalism in China. Right. And, and you're really facing off is a party that's been around for decades. So to change the subject somewhat, did either of you change your mind about anything significant or interesting over the course of reporting and writing this book? Hmm. That's a tough one. Um, I guess for myself... I came away with a greater respect for Lighthizer. Um, I thought he was a more interesting and complicated figure than, than I first assumed. I knew him, I've been covering trade off and on for a long time, and I knew him back in, uh, the 1992. I had the misfortune of covering, uh, issues in the Dole, Clinton campaign, of which there were zero, and Lighthizer <laughs> was his finance chairman. So I got to know him a little bit, you know, and he had a reputation of being a tough guy and a protectionist and sort of, you know, somebody somebody uh, talked about um, being a steel lawyer when it comes to the trade world. Being a steel lawyer is like being stuck in the Galapagos, you know. I mean, it's just off to the side in its own little world. And I thought that he was just an interesting guy who I think understood – um, what he was trying to do and understood the limitations of uh, U.S. power and in the end tried to craft a deal. I mean, it's not a great deal. It's not a terrible deal. Um, but, you know, he wanted, he had a boss. He was a lawyer. The boss wanted a deal. And even if he had to, you know, maneuver the boss a little bit into accepting something that was less than promised, um, he managed to do it. So I don't know. That was, I wouldn't say... You know, I, I turned around on him, but I was it was a more complex character than I thought he was. It's, it's interesting that the, the, the guy you identify having changed your mind about is also somebody who in the book, in the course of the book, kind of changes his mind. I mean, he switches sides at one point and makes common cause with the so-called globalists toward the toward the end. Uh, that was really interesting. Great, great one. And that really did come across in your book uh, that you did that you did seem to, you know, portray him in a much more sophisticated way than. I thought maybe it was just because he was against the backdrop of these other people who are so clownish. But anyway, okay, Ling Ling, what about you? What did you change your mind on? Writing this book really deepened my understanding of Xi Jinping and his leadership style. 
Um, but in retrospect, one thing that I do wish I could have done better is to、uh, better explain how some of the priority issues to the party leadership, such as、uh, sovereignty over Hong Kong,、uh, might have played into the leadership's calculations and negotiations with the U.S. on trade.、Uh, as you know, close to the end of the book. We talked about all those negotiations and calculations that led to the signing of the Phase One trade agreement in January.、Um, I do feel like now that I could have done better explaining why Xi Jinping committed to what appeared both then and now as a、uh, unrealistic trade agreement, and part of. The big reasons lies with Hong Kong.、Uh. You know, as far back as last、uh, June, as we know now, that、uh, President Xi Jinping already started this process of drafting national security law on Hong Kong. So having a trade deal with the U.S. is considered of you know gaining additional leverage over the Trump administration over issues like human rights and sovereignty. You know over Hong Kong. So you know that's the kind of thing. That you know, looking back, I do wish I could have done better. Basically, putting the whole issue of the U.S.-China trade in the broader context of Xi's vision for China. So,、uh, how about COVID nineteen? Has that changed your view on、uh, anything that you wrote about in your book? Not for me. I mean, I think it just accentuated everything. I mean, you know. Um, the the dis you know disunion between the two nations has only gotten greater. The the animosity between the two nations has only gotten greater. The political cleavages have gotten greater. I mean, the weird thing that both Lingling and I note is that the trade deal, which was the or the trade, which was the you know tip of the spear, the thing that the two nations were fighting over, now is. One of the few、um, ties between the two nations. It's really, you know, bizarre、um, uh, <laughs> conclusion. But a lot of that was because of COVID. You know, the way it changed the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Lingling, what about you?、Um, you know, upon finishing writing the book earlier this year, in January, also, we talked about、um, how U.S. China were getting closer. To a new Cold War, and now because of、uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic, I would say that the U.S. China already five inches in in terms of、uh, the new Cold War.、Uh, the pandemic just has、um, deepened the kind of mistrust between the two governments and two countries、uh, so much more. I remember back in January,、uh, both Bob and I. Um, we're、uh, in Washington covering the signing of the Phase One trade deal, and you know everybody. I mean, in terms of reporters, we just you know breathed a huge sigh of relief and thinking. I was thinking to myself, "Great, now I could finally be back China, enjoying the Chinese New Year." And、um, you know, looking ahead, I was thinking about. Um, writing, finally moving on from two years of trade coverage and writing about something else. I remember having even bumped into Vice Premier Liu He in the hallway 
right outside the blue room in the White House, you know,、uh, he looked really tired. Of course, he would look tired because he just stood there, you know, for hours、um, listening to President Trump introducing. Everyone in the audience, he wanted to thank for the for the trade one、uh, phase one negotiations,、uh, but he also looked little.、Um, you know, there's also a sense of、uh, relief. You know,、um, fr- from looking at him. So I, I just went up to him and said,、uh, "Congr congratulations." You know, I、uh, would have asked him some more questions, but if I had more time, but that at that very moment. All I wanted to say to him was congratulations, because I, like a lot of other people, you know, we always, you know,、uh, we all think that the phase one deal, you know, obviously wouldn't, you know,、uh, improve the relationship too much, but at least is a truce of sorts, right? So finally, global investors, global businesses, and even journalists like ourselves、uh, can. Um, have a sigh of relief and、um, you know enjoy the holiday. And then you know, pandemic happened and everything. Obviously,、um, in the relationship, obviously became much worse. And、um, now U.S. and China, you know, tensions between these two are really flaring up on almost every front now.、Uh, it's kind of ironic in a way that. And trade was the area where the relationship started to crumble, right? We had two years of trade war, and now is the only area where both sides maintain some sort of communications. So you know, right now, this whole relationship really is hanging by a very, very thin thread. So Ling Ling, are your parents worried about you being here in the United States? Given all they must be, you know, hearing and, and reading about how bad the pandemic situation is,、um, I really couldn't have done、um, journalism, you know, this kind of independent reporting without the support from my parents.、Um, I would have remained in China、uh, and quit journalism. Uh, had not been for my parents' support,、uh, you know, when China announced that they're expelling all American journalists for the journal, the New York Times and the Post back in March. So,、um, yeah, I am back in New York now, continuing to write about China,、um, largely because of、uh, support from my parents, you know, support for me every step the way in pursuit of my American dream. Um, but obviously, they're also very, very worried about、uh, the pandemic situation in the U.S. They're glued to TV news every day, and obviously, these days,、uh, China state-owned media, you know, all, also only reports the bad news that's coming out of the U.S. So when my parents saw all the, you know, the numbers, you know,、uh, keep surging, they're very worried.、Uh, my my mom even,、uh, you know, just、uh, got me a lot of、uh, traditional Chinese medicine. Uh, uh, she was told that it could be、uh, useful and effective in terms of fending off the virus, only to find out that、uh, there's no way that she could mail all those、uh, medicine to me in New York. Well, we did an on-the-street interview with people in Shanghai, asking them about 
um, what Americans should do about COVID-19 and their thoughts and stuff. And what, the, the thing I remember most was one young guy in Shanghai who was asked, what do you think of the Chinese government response? And he said, bang, bang, you know, very good, like great, great. It was great, you know. <laughs> well, one thing that was unequivocally bang is the book Superpower Showdown, How the Battle Between Trump and Xi Threatens a New Cold War. The authors are Wall Street Journal correspondents Bob Davis and Li Li Wei. And wow, what a wonderful time. I could have talked to you guys for another hour. <laughs> we have like another hour's worth of questions for you. but uh, The book does read like almost like a thriller in a way. It's this great story of these amazing people, many of whom are completely... Um, Wacky, <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering where you were going to go with that. Uh, what a great book! Congratulations on it. It's it's uh, I I I commend it to everyone. I think everyone should get a hold of it because it really really does help us to understand this this time that we are living in. Uh, let's move on now to recommendations. Uh, first, let me tell you how you can support the work that we do. Hey, cynical listeners. I'm really grateful to all of you who've stepped up and donated or subscribed during our drive. As you know, things are in a perilous state right now with U.S.-China relations, and it feels like the middle ground is disappearing really fast. I, I still believe that a deeper understanding of China is urgently needed, so help us get the word out about the podcast and help us keep going, because these things do cost money. If you think this program adds some valuable perspectives and helps to restore a little sanity, if you want us to keep fighting the good fight, then show your support by going to podcast.subchina.com. That's podcast.subchina.com. And help us out however you can. From our podcast team and all of SubChina, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for your contribution. All right, great. Uh, now on to recommendations, uh, Ling Ling and Bob. Uh, Jeremy, why don't you start us off as, as our customer? Okay, so first I have a non-recommendation, which is you've probably heard of this new mobile-first streaming service called Quibi. Anyone who has any familiarity with Pinyin almost certainly um, misreads the word as Chobi, which maybe is not something one should say in polite company. Um, but anyway, do not download and watch Quibi. It's a terrible waste of time. Okay. So that's my non-recommendation. My recommendation is for uh, a website, um, I am Wawa, I-A-M-W-A-W-A dot C-N slash Pinyin. And this wonderful website is makes my daily life easier because uh, sub-China, our newsletters, we always include tone-marked Pinyin and Chinese characters with the names of Chinese people who, unless they ha are particularly famous in English. And this makes it so much easier to insert the tone-marked pinyin. And if you ever need, need tone-marked pinyin for <laughs> anything in your life, I recommend iamwawa.cn slash pinyin. I'm looking at it right now. I had no idea. So you guys don't know how to use the, the Apple command shortcuts for, for inserting pinyin? Oh, we'll have to talk about this, but I don't think it's quicker yeah. than I am Wawa. Uh, it's got to be. I'm, I'm, I mean, I just do it. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> Ling Ling, what, what would you like to recommend to our listeners? 
So right now, I am reading、uh, "Wild Swans" by Zhong Chang. I read the book many years ago, but now I'm just rereading it、um, because it's just such a、uh, incredible tale of modern China, told through the stories of three generations of the author's family.、Um, is fascinating, even to me. You know. Um, someone who was born and raised in China,、um, so it, that's a highly recommended book for anyone who's interested in、uh, China's history and you know how、uh, China has、uh, you know come gone to、uh, where it is now. So it, it, I think it's it's really a great great read. Fantastic, fantastic. Bob, what about you? What do you have for us? So I'm watching Perry Mason, which has the、uh, lead actor、wow. Matthew Reese. I think his name is as、uh, Perry Mason. And the funny thing about that is, so Perry Mason in the HBO show gets into fights and he loses them. And I keep thinking, well, he's the guy from the Americans, and he's going to, you know. Do his special karate or this or that, and he's going <laughs> to vanquish the entire you know five other people that are there. So that one I'm enjoying, and also a、um, Australian、uh, series called Rake about a、uh, lawyer who's a you know ladies' man、uh, character. It's just、yeah. it's just laugh out loud funny. It's great. Oh, great! Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with a TV show too.、Uh, I'm just the U.S. China trade war has me so, well, not just the trade war, the whole you know burgeoning Cold War. Has me just so depressed that I've sought solace and、uh, uh, well, my 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 wife has a funny, very vulgar name for just purely entertaining television,、uh, but I, I can't say it. But anyway, I, it's it's too too foul in Beijing. Hua, but、uh, I I want to recommend a TV show called Search Party,、uh, which was recently recommended to me、uh, by Robert Foyle Hunwick, who's a friend from Beijing. It's a very very dark. Comedy and it's also very funny.、Uh, it's set in Brooklyn. It, it's just a, a just a razor sharp piss take on on millennials, on 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 Brooklyn, on all sorts of sort of recent vintage American absurdities.、Uh, I've watched just one season of it, but I have to say, I my, it had its hooks in me from the first episode. I just you know could not stop. It was so so good.、Uh, so it's called Search Party. And、uh, you just look for it. You can find find it somewhere on on one of those. I can't remember where it is, but、uh, check it out. Lingling, Bob, thanks once again. What a fantastic time to talk to you guys, and、uh, let's do it again. Hey, thanks, Bob. Thanks, Lingling. Thanks you. Thanks, Kaiser. Thanks, Jeremy. It was a pleasure. Yes. Yeah. Thanks, Jeremy. It was fun, man, as always. Indeed. Thanks, Kaiser. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at SupChinaNews, and make sure to check out all the other shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.